It's 2050 and writers are still working. But how? In this episode of the DWF podcast, Jeannie Maxwell, Dakshayini Suryakumaran and Marissa Wickramanayake explore the rise of the gig economy and major upheaval in our production and consumption of written and creative content in the 21st century. Hello, everybody. I hope you're not too cold. Um, just let us know if you want us to speak louder, because I am very soft-spoken. And um, before we start, I want to acknowledge that we are on Wurundjeri and Bonawarn land of the Kulin Nation, and this festival takes place um, on that unceded land, and we acknowledge that we are part of a large, ongoing colonial experiment. <laughs> Um, and this will always be Aboriginal land. I am Marisa Vikramanayake, and I have Jeannie Maxwell and Dakshaya Yini <laughs> Sorry, I'm so used to there being an extra A. Um, who will now introduce themselves to you. I am a freelance writer, journalist, and editor, and I'm also a MIA federal councillor, so I have stuff about the union to quickly tell you before we start, but I'll let them introduce themselves first. So, Jeannie? Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Jeannie. I'm co-editor of The Lifted Brow. Uh, I formerly worked for National Young Writers Festival uh, in 2017 as a producer and 2018 as a director. Uh, and I also, I'm also a writer, um, a poet, so I have a lot of feelings about working for free. <laughs> nice. Hi everyone, um, my name's Lakshani Suri Kumaran. I am going to confess that I'm not really a writer. I'm, I'm a recovering engineer. used to be a civil engineer and um, yeah, I've done a few different things, worked in climate change, disaster risk reduction. I'm currently working human rights at an organisation called the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. Um, and I used to work for um, Foundation for Young Australians that did a lot of work around what the future of work looks like. So. And um, just before we start, very quickly, up the back, there are some handouts, um, so you can go get them. This flyer has your working rights, whether you're in-house or freelance, um, and what you can do to support campaigns to um, help work on working rights and things like that. And these are two, um, as I mentioned, I'm part of the union. If you're interested, there are only 10 of these. Um, get a copy. This is the standard join-in form, and this is if you want indemnity insurance. And there are different levels of fees. Grab a copy or come and talk to me. I'll be around for a little while afterwards as well. So just to let you know those things are there. Um, could yeah. I just ask to start with, Marissa, yeah. do you want to give a bit of background? Actually, maybe both of you, mm -hmm. um, given that I think you both work in organisations that can really like advocate for like people, um, individuals and like groups. So would you maybe want to give a bit of background to what the NEAA do and what the ACCR do? Sure. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure, I can start. So um, the ACCR, um, basically we're a shareholder activism organisation, so we do two main things. So the first one is around putting forward shareholder resolutions to companies. So, you know, I think the biggest ASX 100 companies, so we might, for instance, ask Qantas to stop participating in forced deportation, or we might be talking to Coles and Woolies about their farm workers in their supply chain, so things like that. And then we also do a bunch of research to inform those resolutions. So that's the kind of stuff that we work with. Um, Katie Hepworth um, is our 
uh, workers' rights director, and so she does a lot of work in that kind of farm worker supply chain space. That is so cool. <laughs> it's very cool. Um, so the MEAA is the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. It is a union. Um, it has several different sections. Uh, the media section is the one I am in, and also as of um, the start of July, I am your new Victorian media section branch president because we just had elections. Um, <laughs> but I've been a federal council on the National Federal Council board thing. Uh, we have sections for actors. We have sections for crew for film and TV and sports people. We have a section for symphony orchestras and now a section for comms and a section for uh, gigging musicians, pub musicians. And we have recently started organising um, the Penguin Random House uh, editors and publicity staff. Um, so they've started uh, going through the negotiation process at Penguin Random House for better conditions and pay and things like that. So we do work in the publishing space. Um, but it is a little bit uh, complicated according to the rules of each union. So we do share... Some, some of you people will fall under MWU, then... Australian Manufacturer Workers Union. So, um, yeah, I'm involved with the union and we lobby for things like press freedom, for example, and for um, PIRs, so parallel importation rights, for copyright changes, um, for, you know, making sure that uh, content that is created in Australia is mostly Australian content. It's not repurposed um, international content most of the time that's coming out on our screens or in our books. So we are involved with a lot of other groups like ASA and APA on some of those broader issues as well when we campaign. Um, but, but yeah, we campaign on all sorts of things. <laughs> okay. okay, cool. Um, so welcome to Future of Work. And we decided that we were going to talk about two different possible futures. So the first possible future is the one where all the things go wrong because we don't <laughs> act. Because I'm, I'm very, like, I want people to be proactive, right? And then they told me I could share this session, so haha. Um, <laughs> and then the other one that we'll talk about at the end, which is a little bit more hopeful, and we thought we'd finish on a hopeful note rather than a depressing one, is um, the future where you do act on things. And obviously there is a gradient between the two, but we thought we'd talk about both. Um, so my first question to uh, both of you, you came up with a lot of um, great ideas when we were emailing and discussing this, um, in the future, the most horrible future that you can think of when nobody does anything whatsoever, what are the biggest problems with regards to working in the arts industry? Is that a heavy question? Scary. Yeah. So as context to that very scary yeah. question, um, I just want to briefly talk about, I think... Uh, just it's worth zooming out and kind of mm -hmm. looking at the bigger picture and what okay. are the big yep. trends. Is that okay? Yep. Um, about what's happening in the future mm -hmm. of labour or the future of work. And so I think our understanding of even the class system, so mm -hmm. as like the working class, the middle class and the elite, is completely shifting. So we've moved to this, but we haven't kind of talked about no. that and it's not in the kind of in the conversation about the future Are you work? talking about the fact that, like, now you'll have people who are economically poor but culturally rich, as one of my friends was putting it, and vice versa, oh, yes. and there's all these weird mixes. True. Yeah. yeah. But also, I really like um, Guy's standing view on, like, how class 
the new class structure that's emerging. So you've kind of got the elites at the top, mm -hmm. which is standard. Then you've got like the salariat, which is like the people who have the full-time stable salary. So they'll be in the government jobs, they'll be, um, they'll have paid holidays, all the enterprise benefits, things like that. Then the proficients, and they're the kind of the people who are um, the beneficiaries of the flexible environment because they're getting paid what they want to get paid, but they're maybe like holidaying in Thailand while they work or, you know, they've got this really flexible but quite well-off lifestyle. And um, then you've got the old working class um, as per usual and then the precariat at the bottom. And I think the precariat is like a phenomenon that's really worth mentioning because mm -hmm. um, it's not just about casualisation yeah. um, and not just even about rights, but it's kind of this because of the flexibility and the, uh, the different jobs that you might be doing, you, you don't get a chance to build up necessarily an occupational identity in the same yeah. way that you yeah. normally would and you don't have the same supports of a profession. So I think that's quite interesting. I, and do you think other things come into it, like you could have a full-time or part-time job, but you'd be in the precariat because other systems are not there to support you, like that's things right. like welfare that you might need to fall back on, things like access to healthcare that you might need to fall back on. That's so right. all of that combines as well. So it's not yep. necessarily, oh, I don't have a job. It's like... Yeah. I don't have access to other things I also need. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think that the worst nightmare doom and gloom scenario that I can think of is that that group kind of continuously grows and grows and that becomes the norm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and we, and we don't intervene in how to make, preca like, precarious work not a thing anymore. And I think that's, yeah, that's really devastating. I think the worst case scenario of this is, like, those platforms, the big gig platforms like Mechanical Turk or Airbnb, all, all of those huge platforms where there's like a really small number of owners mm -hmm. and then everyone else is just flexibly working, yeah. um, you know, not getting paid enough, um, not getting the hours they need. And then interestingly on like a global scenario, because these platforms are mainly owned and operated out of the global north, you've got people in the global south actually doing the work days of a global north. So, yeah. the, you know, they're putting themselves in really dire conditions just to mm -hmm. be able to do, like, little scraps of freelance work yeah. for clients in the global north. So yeah. it's it's just exacerbating class divides and all kind of divides um, in terms of inequality. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah do you want to define for people in the audience um, what I know what that definition is, global north and global south for sure. people? Yeah. Sure. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> colonisation, <laughs> 101. Um, so, basically, yeah, I mean, yeah, the way that I think of it is historically um, the global north were, were the countries that were, like, European, um, um, North America and those kinds of countries that colonise the global south, which is, like, um, a large parts of Asia, um, Africa, yeah. So, yeah, and so uh, the the way that the economy is structured today is still set up um, from the patterns of global um, of colonisation. So the flows of capital are very much um, still stuck in those patterns. So that's why the global north and south divide is really helpful because, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you want to? What yeah. are the issues, big issues that you think will ha be the problems in this horrible future? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that future of labour is uh, very, is like looming large and yeah. very grim yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and if I were to speak to the ways that affected the arts in particular, yeah. I think, um, I think there are, 
I think like social class affects every industry, but I think, um, and, I, and separate to that, I think all, like people will always make art, but I think what is funded and what gets platformed and what is considered art will become mm -hmm. more and more specific and actually like more and more, and those definitions will become more and more exclusionary mm -hmm. and oppressive uh, to the extent where like only very particular, I, I mean, I think this is, yeah, I think even more and more, um, the people who are thought of as art makers will belong mm -hmm. to this incredibly small, like elite set, mm -hmm. <laughs> like elite set, uh, because they're the only people who have access to um, art as a platform yep. rather than art as a process. Mm. Um, and that what is absolutely already happening across the arts will mm. continue happening to an even worse degree, which is that it is run primarily by, on the labour of volunteers mm. Mm. and mm. underpaid people, especially like underpaid women and mm. underpaid people of colour, while mm. often primarily white people, especially mm. white men and white women, mm -hmm. benefit from that labour and get the positive exposure from that labour. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I just add to that? Yeah. Um, yep. uh, there was a really interesting thing that happened at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in the US, and people might have heard of it, where mm -hmm. someone just jumped online on a Google sheet and shared their pay and then everyone jumped on and shared and then what they realised is that it went from, the, the range went from 300k yeah. for, for the top curator to, to zero and a bunch of volunteers yeah, yeah. who were mainly people of colour and yeah. various marginalised yeah. groups and so yeah it was, that, that is huge inequality within yeah. one organisation. Yeah, you know, I will I'll add to yeah. uh, my dark horrible, evil future of labour that nobody, nobody talks about money. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, my, my biggest fear is that that future is here now and that yeah. we're ignoring it um, or we're paying lip service to it and it, that it can only really get worse. And my, I, I think one of the biggest problems I face is the lack of awareness p people have about the rights that they're supposed to have. Like, we're not talking like pie in the sky rights that um, aren't in legislation yet. We're talking about rights that are in legislation, but that people are just not aware of mm. and um, that they don't know they can ask for and that they don't know where to go. But also at the same time, they're not very s always supportive of the collective actions and groups and organizations that are actually actively trying to go out there and protect those they don't see. I'm very concerned that people don't see the follow-on consequences of that. Like they look at these organizations and go, what's in it for me? And it's like, nothing's happening to you now, but if you are not supporting these moves and you're not standing in solidarity with maybe people who are going through it right now, this is going to happen to you down the line because we don't have enough power to fight back the way we can fight back today. And that's another thing to realize as well. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that happens. There's a lot of like very public stuff that happens. But all of it is like different ways to try and get achieve a result. And we are also often limited by the very same legislations in the ways mm. that we can do this stuff. We are not allowed to strike, for example, right now 
um, that's a huge problem. That has to be a last-ditch resort. And people can be banned from going back into work if they've been striking, right? So it's very hard to get people to come out and strike because obviously they don't want to lose their jobs. So lots of things have been barred to us, lots of avenues for us to get our point across and and negotiating things. And, you know, the striking example is just one, but that is often the last resort if negotiations already have failed behind the scenes. So that's my concern, that people are not aware and they often are like, oh, you know, the union has never done anything for me, but it's like the union is about solidarity and the union is about protecting you into the future as well as now and protecting you as a collective, as a member of a collective, a member of your industry and your colleagues, not just you as an individual. But people do feel that when they do think that they, and, and then something happens like press, the press freedom issue right now and the mm. FP rates, and people are like, oh my God, like what are we doing? Why isn't anyone doing anything? Mm. And it's really funny to me because for 10 odd years, the union and various other organizations have been lobbying against mm. all these uh, different laws that have been slowly eroding press freedom, the whistleblower legislation, the shield laws from state to state, all of this stuff we've been campaigning against. and. Also, people are like, well, if you've been doing that, why haven't we heard about it? And I don't think people realize mm. the internet is full of information. You're only going to see the most viral thing. That mm. doesn't necessarily mean that the most viral thing that you get to see is the most important information that you need to know. Mm. So you need to learn to go look for stuff. You need mm. to learn to go find stuff as well. You can't expect it to just mm. come to you or that people will just tell you about it as well. So I think that's also part of the problem. People are like, well, if it's important, why haven't I heard about it? Um, lots of people find it beneficial to keep important information away from you because if you're uninformed, um, they can get away with all sorts of things. And it's, it's not all, often even an intentional thing. It's often an unconscious, unintentional thing built into the systems. Mm -hmm. So you don't even realize you're doing that to people. But that, that, that's my issue. People would go, what has the union ever done for me? Well, for 10 years, they've been campaigning so you don't yeah. get thrown in jail if you're a journal. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, we, and then people get confused because you've got parties standing up and saying, oh, yeah, we don't agree with these rates. And it's like, but you voted for the legislation. It passed through two houses. If mm -hmm. it passed through two houses, people in your party voted for it. A majority got it through. Mm -hmm. So why are you standing up against it now? after the damage has been done, sort of thing. Yeah. So I wish people mm. had awareness, and that's what I worry about. I see it happening now, so yeah, I worry definitely. that it's here. Do you think that the uh, increasing casualization of labor and that sense of, like, employment or any job being kind of increasingly unstable mm. uh, is, like, I don't... I know very... I don't think I... I know very, very few people now who think that they will, like, go leave education, get a job, and have that job for the rest of their life. Yeah. Um, do you think that's part of the reason people are sort of failing to engage with union action? No, because the union can still assist you yeah. if, as you move through an industry, even if you're not in the same job um, over a long period of time. You can swap jobs, that's fine. I think what has happened is that people in power have noticed that this is a trend, mm. that people will move from job to job, they won't stay in one job, and they've used it as a justification to introduce casual roles rather than full-time and part-time. They're like, oh, these people are not gonna stay anyway, so we might as well make it a casual thing. 
right? And that's their justification because they know they derive more benefit from having casual roles and they don't then need to, casual roles as they are right now, they don't give you a lot of protection. You get a little bit more super, a little bit more loading, but you could be fired the next day, right? And you can be given any amount of hours. So it works a lot in the employer's favor. Um, and they've realized that. And so they don't then have to keep you on and they don't have to give you all these other benefits, mm -hmm. right? And they don't have to necessarily abide by the award rates um, for each industry and for your level, of, uh, for your role and everything. So um, it allows them to do that stuff. It allows them to impose conditions on you. There's a lot of things, uh, we call this wage theft when people are forced to, mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're told they have to work overtime, but they're not told that they're owed money for that and under the law. And that um, if they aren't paid overtime, that they get days off in lieu. Nobody, people don't know that. I meet people who've been working for 10 years full time and go, I've been missing out on 10 years overtime, which happens a lot in the arts and publishing industry, mm -hmm. especially when festivals are on. Um, people work overtime and they're not, they don't even realize that um, they should be being paid. And this, is what, this was one of the big issues for Penguin Random House. Mm -hmm. The editors and publicity people did not realize that they needed to be paid overtime. And that's in the law. So like, they can get around this. And it's all legal, yes. Mm -hmm. But it does. If, if you're in a casual role, you have less protection than if you're in a full-time, part-time role. Mm -hmm. right, so you've got less room to maneuver as an employee. Hi, I'm Izzy, the Artistic Director at the Emerging Writers Festival. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you'll check out the rest of the Digital Writers Festival at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. You can listen, make, and play. And we've got ghosts of the internet, new machine learning tools for writers, and experiments in digital storytelling. We've also got some really special webinars, including uh, one with one of my favorite audio producers, Mitra Kaboli from The Heart. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we love you right back. So drop us a review, recommend us to a mate, and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen. Uh, um, Tad, to what you said about um, um, how the dystopian future is already here, I think that's a good thing to emphasise because, yeah, it's it is already here for such a vast majority of people, and I mean, yes. especially at this moment with the mm. result that we had in yeah. terms of politically, and yeah, so I think it's. It's yeah. not a projection into the future, no. even it's kind of arrived. Yeah. So it's kind of what are we doing about it? And it's, it's, really it's not our industry, but uh, I go to rallies and I learn these things. The uh, SO workers, for example, there's a group of workers who were um, working full time and then they were uh, let go and they were told to apply for their jobs again, but at a lower rate of pay. And yeah. that is a technique that people can use now. But they were like, no, this doesn't work. We can't live on this wage. And they went on strike and they've been on strike for over two years. And it's damaged their community. Their kids get bullied at school. They don't want to associate with their parents who are working uh, and going on strike mm -hmm. and everything. And I don't know how these families are functioning, to be honest. And every mm -hmm. time we we go to the union rallies for any anything, um, we are always talking about the SO workers and what we can do. Um, they're not in our union, but like, you know, we it's terrifying for mm -hmm. us that you could be on strike for two and a half years or something. Mm -hmm ridiculous amount of time and the company doesn't care mm. so yeah, yeah. I so think uh, in sorry yeah. in in the arts in particular I think um, 
the idea of unpaid overtime and low rates are so normalised yeah. mm. uh, in a really, really, like, damaging way. Mm. I think people have... People, arts workers tend to accept mm. that there is just no way around it yeah. and it's not worth yeah. considering. And I, I think people are so excited when they get a job that they'll just yeah. sign a piece of paper and they don't think to question mm. and find out if everything is kosher, you know, yeah. and proper on the whole thing, what your employee is actually giving you is correct by law. I mean, sometimes it's totally unintentional on part of the employee, especially if you know a smaller organization, they might not be fully across all of this stuff. Um, so that can happen. Um, but it's always worth checking, right? So always do this, because if you expect someone else to tell you, you might be sitting around waiting for 10 years or something without realizing you how much more you're owed, um, it, whether mm. it's overtime or whether they've been paying you less overall, you know? So. So what are your solutions? Do you have solutions then for any of these issues? <laughs> like, start the hopeful part now. Do you want to go first? Oh, sure. I'll, I'll just, just go solve, first. Solve the future, please. Um, where should we talk specifically about the arts, do you think? Or yeah, yeah, about yeah. Okay. Um, so, Marissa, as... Uh, union rep, mm. um, how do you think that arts organisations, particularly small arts organisations mm. and arts organisations that have, that rely, as pretty much all of them do, heavily on volunteer labour, yeah. can improve their labour practices? Well, I think, first of all, you have to go find your award. Um, it might fall, I think, if you're arts workers. In some cases, it depends on how you're funded as well. So if you are a not-for-profit or you're funded by government, there will be different unions that can handle that. Um, so CPSU is one, the ASU is another. We do do some arts community managers. We do take some of them under our win at MIA under the under ECS, I think it is, um, under the cruise section. But So the awards, um, the, when I talk about awards, I mean a long legal document that sets out um, basic base rates mm -hmm. and it's uh, um, set up by Fair Work for each industry and there's usually a set of levels which is basically like you know, if you're level one you're starting out and then you go up level two, level three sort of pay grade things um, and so it sets out all those sorts of basic rates and conditions for your industry and what you're working in um, and it's updated every four years by Fair Work, and uh, you can be part of that process if you're part of your union or any other lobby group that's involved with updating that. So each industry will have one. There'll be one for arts organizations somewhere, but I don't know what it is. It might be part of the book industry award. It might be something separate that CPSU and ASU have negotiated before. So I think the very first thing is to um, check that call up CPSU or ASU and say, what, what is the award? What should we be doing? Um, there's other blanket things that are on this mm. piece of paper um, that are across the board, like overtime must be paid if you're full-time, part-time, that sort of thing. Uh, and yeah, you should get days off in lieu. So like just checking and seeing if you're doing that, that you have access to super and all of those sorts of things. Um, those would be the first easy steps, I think. Beyond, if you if you can't get anywhere, like there has to be this process of employees negotiating with the employer or the board. Um, and if you're not getting anywhere doing it, having a nice casual conversation 
by yourselves within the organization, then you can organize to join a union. And what you do is, um, if you have a department within the organization, or if we can count the entire workforce, you only need a majority. So you only need like three-fourths. Once you have a majority of people who join a union, Fair Work tells the employer you have to start negotiations. Mm -hmm. So if that's one way you can use the Fair Work Act to your advantage. So if three-fourths of the people, so in, for example, Penguin Random House, it was editors and publicity. They didn't talk to sales. They didn't talk to any other departments, but they got three-fourths of both those departments to unionize. And no one can um, discriminate against you for being a union member, by the way. You're protected. Um, that's not to say they'll be passive-aggressive and pressure you. That might happen. Um, and you don't have to declare whether you're a union member or not to anyone. So if someone asks you, you just say, mm -hmm, walk away. <laughs> so you don't have to declare that if anyone asks you. So you can organize yourselves, and then you can present something to your employer and say, we've tried already through internal channels to get this happening. We think it should happen. We think this is what the law requires. Um, and so we wish to enter into bargaining now. And um, then the union uh, comes on and helps you, and Fireworks says, okay, right, three-fourths of your go employer, you have to start negotiating. So, yeah. And then the unions will help you with that. So that's one way doing things. That, but I think first of all, do the research, find out, and like check where, where you guys are and how well you um, are going against the award document. Um, I also think money aside, something that mm -hmm. all arts organisations uh, would really, really benefit from is a stronger focus on HR mm -hmm. um, and really, really strong, like, professional care. Um, yeah. I feel, I think so many times, the, like, burnout is positioned as this individual problem, as if it's mm -hmm. not an institutional failure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think having more uh, HR representatives on boards and in mm -hmm. organisations would actually make a really, really massive difference without yeah. putting too much of an extra financial burden on, mm -hmm. like, small yeah. to medium arts organisations. Yeah. I think That's it's important, for me. It's important to quantify the workloads you have. Mm -hmm because then you can say so-and-so is having like, you know, one and a half times the workload. So you need to employ a part-timer mm -hmm. to take that mm -hmm. half on, mm -hmm. right? And otherwise Fair Works can come down on you. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And that's the thing, report it to Fair Work. If you're not getting anywhere, you mm -hmm. can call Fair Work and report it and they will come and slap a warning and they have a process, right? So in that way, Fair Work, the Fair Work Commission can work uh, to your benefit as well. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so. I can speak to some um, some other ones that may or may not be mm. related specifically to writing and yep. publishing. Um, so I think the three buckets that I think about are like transparency of what's mm. going on now yep. um, within organisations. So I think the MoMA thing, that would be really cool if like a bunch of organisations had to report on that stuff. So that's not just pay but, you know, what are your... Um, what, what are, are your, your hours? Yeah. Your what hours and your um, but even like KPIs, yeah. your role requirements. But even like race and gender and yeah. all of that, you know, just the basics really. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> what, you know, knowing what the kind of status, what's the problem? You need to have the yeah. information so yeah. that transparency is one. And then the second um, area, and it really links to all the stuff that you've been saying about unions is like different organising models um, mm. in addition to what we've already got and also different business models. So mm. there's this really interesting example 
called Green Taxi Cooperative mm. in um, in the US, in Denver, Colorado. That you Are might you talk about see? social enterprises because I love social enterprises. Oh, okay. Well, kind of. I mean, this is so. This is an interesting collaboration between the local union um, that covered drivers um, and also it was basically the union plus just a bunch of drivers that were pissed off with Uber and so obviously Uber I think we all know how shit they are so they wanted an alternative because Uber had um, come you know they've got a huge market share but um, what they did is basically incubated a driver-owned cooperative Mm -hmm. and now there's 800 drivers that are part of this collective and they're obviously all unionised because the union kind of incubated this business Um, and so they've got an app, they've got the tech platform, they all co-own that. Um, So they get paid fairly. So it seems to be really working and it's operating at a a scale that's actually interesting and so I thought that was just a great example of a tangible thing Um, and also just in terms of how... Um, business models are businesses are created and funded obviously like we we chatted backstage about how funding models are so problematic and how um, philanthropic funding is really hard to come across and then corporate funding is really problematic because you don't know if you're aligned values wise and things like that but I think related to that cooperatively owned kind of model there's now I think like I think the legislation passed that we can in Australia now have crowd-funded equity business models. So you could put on a crowdfunding platform, Mm -hmm. um, I want to launch this business and then technically like thousands of people could uh, Could buy shares in it and then co-own it. Yep. And then that you could fund that way, yep. which is actually quite exciting. Well, because, they've started doing yeah. that for an app for connecting um, hospitality staff to yeah. jobs. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's yeah. kind of interesting because then you don't have to have those huge pools of capital like, yep. and you don't have to rely on the really elite people yep. with their however many millions. You could yep. kind of go down to the people that have, yeah, a little yep. bit less and, yeah. So, U- that's kind Unions of here already incubate little um, groups of colour. So, you don't join the union but you um, sometimes that's because of a weird rule from the 1900s in the union rules or whatever that you can't change but mm. um, say you have a, a group of people that want to act on something and you form a collective um, and the union can step in and help you campaign so they will look after you in that mm. way they'll teach you how to campaign and go about things and everything we haven't gotten to the part I've never heard of anyone here doing the going as far as making it a business yeah. but I've, I know that we've done that before and help people campaign. So game yeah. workers, for example, we've helped them figure out a campaign and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I th- yeah, and I think it's interesting because like platforms like Twitter have such a big impact on writing mm. and particularly journalism and how ideas are shared and who owns the ideas and and all of that. So yeah, I think it would be really interesting. This is really out there, but <laughs> it would be really interesting if there was a co-ownership model around something like a Twitter yeah, yeah. because then, yeah, you wouldn't be publishing free content all the time for yeah. some rando in Silicon Valley that is just, yeah. like, pocketing off your stuff. So. Well, it's sort of already happening in community groups where people form groups and they might charge an access fee of, like, a dollar yeah. or something. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're putting out information about rates and publishers and things, but they have rules about how, uh, how what the minimum rate should be if you post yeah. it, etc and rules yeah. about how much you should charge and everybody abides by those things. So and it becomes yeah. like a collective action totally. but it doesn't have to be um, made very formal. It doesn't have to be yeah. formalised in any I, way. I yeah. think it would be really interesting if that was like less um, organisation specific and maybe like across a few different organisations and the access point was kind of 
Does that make sense? Because you know how you're kind of buying a bit bit of membership from this, like Mm -hmm. you want content from here, you want content from here, but it would be interesting if like you'd pay, Mm -hmm. if that was coordinated in some way as a non-writer. I don't know. No, no, the union has done that before with other organisations where you you have joined those organisations so you have reciprocal membership to the union and things like that. So the Institute of Editors, for example. And we're still trying to get that back because the Institute of Editors restructured itself. So we have to go back and revisit the whole thing and put it back together. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's taking a bit of time. But we are hoping to do things like that as well. So that, because we understand you can't pay several different (laughs) fees for the union and the organisations, all the ones that you're part of, especially with people doing different jobs and everything. Yeah. That's my random ideas <laughs> as a non-writer <laughs> person. So um, yeah. let's move on. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think makes some people more vulnerable than others? I can start. I think we've touched on in some of those. Yeah. So I think the precariat, we know that, yeah, it's um, disproportionately... Um, has a lot of, you know, migrants and refugees, for instance, and race and gender and class and um, sexual... All of that plays a role. And I think the interesting thing about it is that the movements maybe to gain rights in some instances are quite siloed. So it's... um, We don't necessarily all identify as we're all part of this um, whole. And I think that's important as well. Like, you can be an ally to someone Mm. who's pushing for particular rights and things Mm. because in the end it will benefit you. Just because you don't identify doesn't mean you have to step back from that project or anything. Yeah, Yeah. and you might be advocating for the same rights. You might be in the same group, actually. Yeah, like, you know... Being in the precariat, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think... Yeah, I think you covered it very well, <laughs> <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure what I could add. Yeah. Okay, go on to the next question. <laughs> I, um, so, what do you think is? I think we've talked about. Okay, what does a future where we do act look like? What do you want the best future? Since we talked about a dystopian one, mm-hmm. a utopian one. Best future. Yeah, I mean. I think maybe because we've talked really high level, it would be interesting to explore a bit more about, like, at an organisational level, mm-hmm. what, like, would... Particularly the size organisation that you're in and that yeah. a lot of us have been involved in, like, what would the ideal be in that kind of context? Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. I think uh, in terms of the arts, I think it would be if there were clear resources that young arts organisations and individual arts workers could have Mm -hmm. about uh, professionalising and who they could reach out to to help that process uh, and to ensure that they, like, protected their own rights but also protected the rights of the people they were working with. Mm -hmm. I think um, much, much higher HR standards and, like, across the board, of course better money and also more mm. equitable and transparent money. Yeah. Uh, I think and I, I, I think one. we have to yeah. realise that if we don't have these things, it impacts horribly on our health and our mental health and well-being. Mm. We have to worry about all of these things and, like, imagine a future where you didn't have to worry and you didn't have mental health problems because you were worrying about all of this stuff and where your money was going to come from and everything. You know, imagine yeah. you were paid properly. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, wow. I sort of mentioned <laughs> this earlier, but one of the things that really strike, struck me about conversations around burnout, particularly yeah. in the arts, is the response is so often like, 
don't take this on if you can't do it. Yeah. Like maybe you should step back. Maybe you should take a break. Maybe you're not up to this. Right. Um, which I think really like. I think it makes it very, very hard for anyone to assert a work-life boundary or yeah. to discuss, like, poor labour rights. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, definitely yeah. positioning, like, the welfare of the worker as mm. an institutional concern yeah. is huge. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I do, I do get cross now. Um, some, uh, someone asked me in the podcast, and at the time I was feeling a bit uncomfortable. I answered it, but, uh, but at the time I was, like, wondering why I was feeling personally a bit com- uncomfortable. But someone asked, oh, do you ever sleep? Because they ask me all the things I do. Um, not today. I didn't sleep last night. <laughs> um, but uh, I realized why I was uncomfortable. I don't like the question, do I ever sleep? Because it tends to give me a sort of... Um, it's, it's, you stop the conversation, right? Once you ask someone, oh my God, do you ever sleep? Um, you're kind of attributing to them some sort of superhuman power to do yeah. all the things they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I... I'm not a superhero, I don't care about that. I don't want to be on a pedestal. What would help me is every single other person actually doing something that I also do and going out and being actively engaged and volunteering if they have to, to do all of this activism work because then you guys are doing it and I'm doing it too and we're sharing the workload and none of us are tired. (laughs) And we're getting somewhere and it's not just one person who might then burn out. Mm. I might burn out. You don't know how long I'm going to be able to go on like an energizer bunny. <laughs> and when it's a yeah. few individuals, when it's phrased like that, like yeah. it's this amazing, oh, like, oh, Wonder Woman, like, yeah, oh, yeah, you're no, incredible. That, that's not what I want to Kind hear. of vibe. Like, Sorry. all it means <laughs> is that... It's like, oh, my God, I could never do what you do. And it's like, no, don't give yourself that excuse. Go out there and do it. Oh, like, I'm not interested mm. in that excuse, you know. Like, I also don't have the time. I also don't have the energy. I also have all of these other things that mm. um, are priorities in my life. But I do this because I want to be a decent human being. Yeah, I mean, I think, mm. the, I think the undertone of that kind of language is mm. either that people are, like, very capable, totally capable and privileged people are excusing themselves from the conversation or the conversation has been made completely inaccessible to mm-hmm. like a huge yeah. amount of people and both are yeah, really because people then awful. think oh I could never do that if I don't have x y or z already set up mm. yeah mm. I mean it's one thing if you want to do something you don't know how mm. fine mm. but like if you say to yourself oh I can't because my circumstances won't let me you know and it's like no you can find something that you can do it might not be the exact same thing but there's probably something some way you can help I was thinking about this sometimes people think the problem is too big but you can break it down into little small things. So if you take diversity in publishing, for example, you've got Aus- Australian Women Writers, which is a volunteer uh, website, and what they are focusing on is the promotion of female writers, right? Um, and by calculating, um, getting people to read and review them. Um, then there, is, there are people like Hela Ibrahim who run Jed Press, and that's getting people published, right? And that's a, a volunteer thing on her part and she pays people. Then you've got the First Nations and uh, POC Writers Count that I'm a part of the team for. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is get stats on diversity in publishing, who gets published, et cetera. Right? So there are, we, are, we are not tackling the problem as one big problem. We're all coming from it from different angles. Mm-hmm. So you can always break it down into a little bit and work on that little bit. 
And you can do it by yourself or you can amass a team. Hella does JED by herself. The Australian Women Writers have a team of volunteers and then we are a team of volunteers for First Nation and POC Writers Council. And those are not formal things. They're not formal organizations. They're just things we do on the side. <laughs> you know, I have Skype. I, ha I, I do everything via Skype meetings on the weekend. No? It can be done. And I, I do really, really hope that organizations like these can um, can get the like the resources uh, and the structural mm -hmm. support to formalize and to get more support because I think yeah the First Nations and POC writers count is so important. Yeah, I think it is important at this point we're not going to formalize it, but yeah, mm -hmm. I do think it is important. It has to. I think for the stats to continue to have meaning, of course, we'll have to keep repeating this year after year and see the change and track that. Mm. Um, but like, we have baby steps at the moment. But I think it's very interesting because we started this a couple of years ago and nobody wanted to help us. And now that we couldn't get grants and we couldn't get funding and assistance from other places, we decided to crowdfund. So we're currently do, doing that. Please Google and donate. Mm -hmm. um, you can donate for my birthday. I don't want a present. Just donate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, but now that the, the whole crowdfunding system is up and running and people are hearing about it, all these organizations that said no to us are coming and going, oh, can we be involved somehow? It's like, hmm. <laughs> if you really cared, you would have been involved from the beginning when we needed the assistance to like, um, you know, get funding or put forward grants or just, you know, back us in a bit of a formal way when we needed it. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Uh, I just add to that. Um, I think it's in terms of thinking about where the in intervention should be, thinking about who has power in the system. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why, yeah, corporations and um, also who privately owns huge platforms is a really important thing to look at and not just platforms but then the content and then the data. Yeah. And so I think it's, yeah, really important to to do all of the things at the more grassroots level, but it's like, who who's gonna be, like, we do need to think about, like, who's owning the next AI technology that's relevant yeah. to writers, who's it actually creating it, who's building it, so, definitely. yeah, I think that's really important, and I, um, yeah, I would just, I'd be interested in who's playing in that space, mm. you know, of, like, building, building something, having the ambition to build something of that scale, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. So I think we should start taking questions from yes. the audience if people have. We'd like to preference first station and POC folk first, if that is possible. And questions, please, not comments, because <laughs> otherwise we'd be here forever. Even, sorry, even in like if we do get decent pay across the board. How do you, how would we deal with outsourcing? I know I used to work for an arts company and mm -hmm. they'd be like, oh, we'll just go and like outsource it to someone in mm. a third uh, world country because okay. they're going to yes. do that for 50. Whereas yeah. if we got yeah. an actual creative in Australia, it's yeah. going to be a grand to get it done. Yep. How mm. do we deal with that if we're all fighting for the same thing and then they're like 
we'll take it international and get it cheap that way. Oh, okay. So we can do that. The union has been having this conversation between freelance journals and in-house journals. And in-house journals ask this question, okay, right, so if the freelance journals are asking for more pay, then what about our jobs? And what we say is if the freelance journals are asking for more pay, they're more expensive to hire, you are cheaper, you keep your rates and your pay, you get your pay increases, you get your conditions. It gives um, the companies an incentive to keep you. In terms of going international, there's not much we can do to stop that, but what we can do is we can lobby governments to set up certain laws. So there's a law already that you can't give a job to a foreign uh, citizen if you've got a city, uh, uh, Australian citizen who can do that job. Right, um, which annoys a lot of my foreign friends who are not citizens yet, but it works in an Australian citizen's favour. So if we can have some, um, if we can kind of alter that law so it applies to this sort of situation where we say you're not allowed to outsource, keep the money in the country. Um, so you, yeah, that that would help a lot, I think, and that would also help because then people have to look at their budgets and go, okay, it's the freelancers are going to cost this much, right? They've been asking for uh, more pay, etc. And if we need someone to manage that if we start doing that, right? Or we can continue as we are and we can give everyone a pay increase and better conditions and overtime, right? And they will do the numbers on that and it'll probably work out in your favour. Um, this is a question particularly about writers and especially emerging writers, especially like uni students. Mm -hmm. We're often told that we should try and get our work published even if we aren't paid for it, just to get a few publications under our belt. And I totally understand the value of doing free work and internships and experience. But at what point do we start standing up to that? And yeah, is there a risk yeah. of like perpetuating that kind of culture of accepting well, free work? The union frowns upon unpaid internships, right? Um, because it's too easy to exploit people. But also, um, you're worth something now. Your labour is worth something now, right? So even if you're a uni student, try and get paid. I understand that there are places you might. I think. There will be some small organisations, definitely, where they won't have a budget. They will rely on free content. You can do that for a little bit to show that you have clips and things. But honestly, there there's a lot of people in Australia. There's a lot of very famous... New, New York Times is open to anybody, regardless of experience level. Pitch to them. They will pay you. There's lots of foreign international publications that will take pictures and they're not concerned about your experience level, right? And um, just pitch, don't be scared to do that, right? And just say, yeah, I'm starting now, but I really want to. I, I know a few people who, are, who have started out, maybe they're not students, but they've just started writing per se, and they've gone straight ahead and pitched and been paid for it, you know? And they've got all these lovely big bylines that I wish I had. <laughs> because I didn't have the confidence when I started that to pitch. Yeah, yeah um, I completely agree with Marissa. Uh, speaking as like a writer and a literary editor, I mm. would say that there is, there does feel like there's this real pressure to publish when you're at uni and when you're coming out of uni, but it is not uh, reflective of a real world pressure at all. I think what is a better 
speaking kind of strategically, it's much, much better to hone your craft uh, and identify particular journals or editors mm -hmm. who, are make, who are producing work and editing work that you identify with and that you really value, and then reaching out to those editors when you have work that you, like, work that you have confidence in or a topic that you have confidence in and you are familiar with that journal's work. I think, yeah, because from the perspective of the brow, we don't, like, ask, you know, we don't look at your CV when we look at a pitch or a piece. We just look at the piece. Um, but it's a good fit. Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, so I think I would say, yeah, don't work for free. Um, unless it's for something you're incredibly passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and even then do, you know, I used to work for free for reviews, for example, but I would get like a, a access to a, a gig or something and I would be like, for the amount of words and the time I'm taking to produce and the cost of going to the gig, if I had to buy the ticket, like that weighs out mm. as well. So I would be like, oh, if it's only this much, I'm not actually going to spend that much time on it. So I heard uh, there was this thing going around where someone had to listen to an uh, album 10 times and review it, but the actual amount was very small. So I was like, why? If you had to listen to it 10 times, that's 10 hours worth of work. And then you have to write the thing, which is maybe another hour, 11 hours worth of work for what was really maybe one hour's worth of pay. No. So you had to make those decisions like you can think about it that way yeah and actually in addition to that speaking on the subject of free stuff um <laughs> you can also like um negotiate things like that mm. last year i was asked to write for a major publication um on a really major uh australian festival and they didn't offer me pay or Anything. anything they did they didn't yeah. offer me anything and i emailed them back very calmly explaining <laughs> that that was completely unacceptable um and that they should offer to compensate me in some way mm -hmm. even if their publicity budget was tight and they did mm -hmm. because like yeah, often often the people who are like reaching out their first thought isn't your well-being. <laughs> your first mm -hmm. thought has to be your well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and often they'll come round very, very quickly and see your point. Yeah. You have to look after yourself. Editors yeah. often rushed. They're not the ones usually deciding the budget. Either. The budget yeah. comes from top down. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really not unprofessional to ask for more. Speaking as someone who has had writers ask for more from me and as a writer who has asked for more from other people, it's completely normal and professional and fine. So yeah, don't work for free. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you have any other questions? Ask now. I think we've yes. only got what time for this last yes. one. Yeah. I absolutely loved that articulation of the class structures with the elites and the salarians and the old working class and the precariat at the bottom. May I know which theorist it was who articulated that? Because I'd love to read more. Yeah, so Guy Standing is the name. Um, yeah, so there's a whole book called The Precariat. Yeah, lots of good online talks that he's done. Really interesting person to follow. It's a brilliant yeah. name, isn't it? Precariat. <laughs> it is. Explains it so well. Yep. All right. So, that yep. Done. Yeah. I'll be hovering around if you've got questions about the union or anything. So you can come and ask.
Thank you you so much for sharing. And thanks for coming. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope to see you right here online for the rest of the Digital Writers Festival program. This podcast series was put together by our brilliant program producer, Lynn Nguyen, and the audio was produced by the fantastic Ahmed Youssef. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP, Songs in Your Name. You can find them online as Huntley Music. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches.